hack our electrical grid if this is what we've got uh, in front of them. So I, I, I thought I would scare you more. It's not so much what violations they found as what they thought it took to get a violation. You know, those password rules, I, I can't believe these are still the rules, but this, this is what they said. Uh, each password used by an electrical utility shall be a minimum of six characters long. Yeah. Uh, that'll, that'll show up. Right. right? Uh, it, uh, how long, uh, Nick, would it take to run a, um, uh, a rainbow table on six characters worth of passwords? <laughs> Done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, long in less time than it takes Nick to uh, jeeringly laugh at the proposal. If, if I remember right, the password password is eight characters, so that would survive that, exactly. that criteria. Yeah, I, you know, and this is this is. Welcome to a milestone episode 250 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us with lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And uh, I should say that any resemblance between uh, the views expressed here and the views of our clients, partners, and institutions is purely coincidental. Uh, uh, joining me on the news roundup, uh, Matthew Hyman, uh, visiting scholar at the National Security Institute, previously with the National Security Division of Justice. David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners and former assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division of Justice. And Nick Weaver, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute uh, at uh, UC Berkeley. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NHA and DHS, the host and provocateur for today's program. But uh, let's jump in with a story that I think should send chills down your back if your bank still sends you SMS messages to uh, as a second factor authentication when you log into your accounts. Uh, uh, David, the Justice Department caught a couple of people engaged in utterly defeating that kind of uh, uh, system. Right. Uh, so they they arrested a couple of guys in late January for a SIM swapping scheme to steal cryptocurrency. It has a certain alliterative ring to it. What happens in a SIM swapping scheme is the uh, the bad guys call up the cell phone companies, the providers of service to their victims, and they persuade them to port the phone number from the victim's SIM card to the bad guy's SIM card. And I'm sure Nick can explain this way better than I can, but you know, a SIM card is that little thing about the size of your fingernail that goes into the side or back of your phone and tells the phone company sort of what your number is. So it's an, it's an identifier for your, your phone. And they, they got the cell phone companies to switch the numbers over, which then allowed them, as you pointed out, they can interfere with two-factor authentication uh, because now these text messages and calls would go to them rather than to the victims. And they hacked their way into the victims' digital lives. They stole various things from them, and including cryptocurrency, and they also extorted them. The result was a bunch of charges under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and uh, various extortion and fraud statutes. Um, so yeah, this is concerning if you're if you're using uh, SMS for two-factor authentication. It would be better to use an authenticator app or something even a little tougher. Nick, anything to add on the technique of uh, uh, SIM swapping schemes? 
that it often depends on corrupt phone company insiders or social engineering at the phone company. So in some cases, these SIM swappers would basically trick the phone company. In other cases, they would actually just literally bribe a phone employee to do the swap. And the problem is, is the phone network has to support such swaps because what happens when you lose your phone? You get a new phone, you get a new SIM card, you have to be able to tell the phone company, hey, route all phone calls to this new device. And so the bad guys are just taking advantage of that uh, error recovery mechanism. My favorite social engineering device was a woman who did this kind of thing. Uh, and she had a tape recording of a crying baby, really, really upset crying baby, which at about two minutes into the call, she started playing over and over again saying, oh, God, I, I you know, I'm just so harried. I've got to, got to fix this right away. Oh, my God, there's a baby. I'll go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, if, if she got an, an any kind of empathy out of the uh, person doing the swap for her at the phone company, she got it in, you know, two and a half minutes. But that's actually, that's only one of the vulnerabilities that uh, we're talking about today. There's also an indication that there are new ways to exploit vulnerabilities in the signaling system so that uh, without even stealing somebody's uh, uh, SIM card, uh, uh, you know, reassigning their SIM card, you can get all of their text messages and their location data. Uh, Nick, uh, uh, what's this all about and uh, how worried should we be? Uh, this is actually something that we should have been worried about for a long time. So the SS7, Signaling System 7, is how all the phone companies talk to each other. And thanks to cell phone roaming, they basically, random phone company has to be able to say, hey, Stork Baker's cell phone is at my network. Route all calls to it. Right. And so bad guys have used this for all sorts of things. They've used it for tracking people. They've probably used it for espionage. If I was a senator on the, the intelligence committee, I would ask the NSA personally, have you seen SS7 attacks on my phone numbers and those of my staffer? Because the answer is probably yes. And the problem is, is we're on the trajectory that's so common in the computer world is yesterday's national security technique is today's common criminal. And so crooks in Europe have somehow compromised or bribed or somehow gotten connection with a phone company that can speak on SS7 and have been using this to intercept SMS-based two-factor and steal from the banks that way. Yeah, that's uh, and and that that sort of takes uh, sim swapping schemes and um, uh, commodifies them and industrializes them. So you can just take them in large uh, uh, gulps. Uh, you can you can just once you know the number, you just tell the uh, the home uh, registry, I need to know who this person is, and uh, since he's here, send his messages to me. Yep. And it wouldn't surprise me if these days there's probably 
one or more underground forums where you can actually just buy it as a service. So How of course. that's the real revolution in cybercrime over the past decade has been specialization in services. And so I would bet 50 bucks that there is at least one service where you can pay with web money or possibly cryptocurrency, but probably web money. Uh, which is basically Russian PayPal that kind of says criminality, who cares, and perform this attack by just providing money. So is HAAS a thing? It's is uh, hacking as a service? Because uh, that's what it sounds oh, yes. like. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Terrific. There, hacking as a service has actually been around for a while. So if you want to, say, build a botnet of, 100,000 computers for other purposes, you actually pay a pay-per-install service that will hack a huge number of systems for you. And depending on where the systems are in the world, you might pay more or less. So that does raise the question, did um, uh, the Inquirer get all of Bezos's uh, romantic, I guess they're romantic, and actually they were pretty romantic uh, as these things go, <laughs> messages to his girlfriend uh, uh, by uh, uh, hiring uh, phone hackers, or is it Bezos's girlfriend's brother? brother who provided the uh, the data. Actually, we don't know the answer to that. And uh, I, I think the only question for us, uh, since we can't ignore this story, or at least I can't, what can I say, uh, is uh, what are the legal issues here? Uh, Jeff Bezos uh, framed this, did a, this yeah. was a brilliant uh, uh, step on his part. He framed the whole issue by, uh, by saying, I am being extorted by the Inquirer, which has threatened to publish um, below-the-belt selfies. I thought that was a, 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 a nice um, uh, sort of bolderized uh, version of the, uh, the usual expression. Uh, and uh, uh, in order to get me to agree not to accuse them of writing stories about me that are politically motivated, in, in particular this uh, 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 girlfriend divorce story, and a lot of people have been saying, well, that's that was extortion straight up. They said, we have these pictures of you. Uh, we'd like to settle this case. All you have to do is agree with us that we are not engaged in a politically motivated campaign, and we will implicitly or explicitly not run with these additional bits of information we have about our story. So... I'm a little skeptical about whether you can make an extortion case there out of two lawyers. Uh, I mean, practically every settlement I've ever been involved with could have been repackaged as extortion because you're giving up or failing to do something that will be really painful in exchange for uh, some action on the part of the other side. Um, but I, I know, David, you're a little more inclined to believe this is extortion. Yeah, I am. Um I mean, I think if you look either at the Washington state statute, which is probably what would apply here, Bezos lives uh, near where I live in Seattle, um, or at the federal law, 875D of Title 18, I mean, most of the elements of extortion are pretty clearly met. There's interstate commerce, there's a threat to injure reputation, there's a thing of value probably being exchanged here, which is the forbearance. Uh, or the statement that AMI is not politically motivated in its reporting. 
Um, I agree with you, Stuart, that the, the sort of the key issue is whether there's sort of this claim of right to do uh, what they wanted to do uh, anyway, because if you take the, the doctrine too far, you could repackage every settlement discussion as an extortion. But I think here there's a, enough distance between what they have a right to do and what they're demanding that Bezos do in order to get them not to publish um, that I think the case probably works legally and, and probably would have some jury appeal. I mean, there there's a, you know, imagine that they had said, give us money or we're going to publish these photos. That would be sort of a textbook case of extortion. Supreme Court's actually ruled on such a case under the auspices of the Travel Act way back in the uh, in the 1960s in the Nardello decision. So I think this has got legal and potential jury appeal. And if I were AMI's lawyers, I would be very, very scared right now, particularly because, of course, they're under a non-prosecution agreement uh, that gives the government additional leverage. Right, in which they agreed they wouldn't commit any further crimes. Right. Right. And and I think the other interesting thing about that is in connection with the non-prosecution agreement, um, where they promise for three years to keep their nose clean, uh, it's not limited to federal crimes. So going back to David's point, whether you can articulate a uh, a claim under Washington law, or Washington state law, or New York state law, which based on my very quick reading of the statute seems to be a little bit easier to prove up an extortion case than under federal law, uh, I think the the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors in Manhattan, have some interesting choices in terms of what they want to do with AMI, which could be as simple as not worrying about a jury trial involving. Uh, prosecuting uh, AMI for extortion, but simply going back to the judge that officiated over the non-prosecution agreement and say, judge, we've got a violation and you alone can decide whether it's true or not that something's been violated. But so, they'd have, have to have a mini trial on that. They'd have a mini trial, but it'd be a judge trial rather than a jury trial. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So, uh, David, you had said if they'd asked for money, it would have been an easier case. Now, that's for sure. I guess the question is whether... There is something that Bezos could have sued them over if they had just published these pictures and be damned, right? Uh, uh, if they have a full legal right to publish the pictures, it's a little hard to call it extortion when they say we're willing to give up that right if you'll give up the right to to stop accusing us of something that isn't true. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's sort of two elements in that. One is the thing of value aspect of it, which is the difference between just cold, hard cash and some other action here. I think most courts would find that what they were asking for was a thing of value. I think you're right, though, that there is this question about the claim of right, which is, I, I think, though, the courts have, have understood that not to be as simple as what you just said, which is that if you could do the thing that you are saying you would otherwise do, you can't be guilty of extortion. Mm -hmm. um, the courts, I think, and they're sensitive to the First Amendment concerns and other concerns that, that lie here, and I frankly don't know, since I don't know how they got the photos, whether they would indeed have a right to publish them. But they usually want a tighter fit between the remedy that the, or between the action that the extorter is seeking and the right that the extorter allegedly has. And here, they're not sort of, you know, saying uh, something to Bezos about the photos per se. They're actually telling him to stand down from an investigation and disclosing results of investigation of them. Uh, so I think that's a little bit too far afield, probably, to fit within this claim of right defense. 
And I also think to the extent they start putting up some kind of news gathering defense here, of course, although they are sort of a news outfit, they're actually trying to stop the Washington Post and Bezos from reporting the news, not trying to report it themselves in the extortionate element. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're, you're right, although I have to say if you've been on the receiving end of a sophisticated reporting, you know that there's an element of extortion in every call uh, because yeah. the call usually begins, here's the story I'm running with. Would you yeah. like to correct it or should I just publish something that will ruin your reputation forever? Yeah, tell me your side of the story. Exactly. Or without that. <laughs> so I, 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 I think if you're the media – you kind of don't know who to root for here. Complicated with two media organizations uh, involved. Last um, question. Well, let me let me let me ask you the last question, which is: Is it conceivable that these text messages found their way to the Inquirer's hands without a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? You know, that's the right. I mean, there's lots of strange ways. I suppose the brother, who is apparently an ardent Trump supporter, the brother of the girlfriend. You know, might have taken a photo of the girlfriend's phone. Maybe that wouldn't be a violation. I, I don't know. Um, I think one of the representatives of AMI said on TV that they were using a longtime source here. Um, if that source was hacking, then there would be a huge problem. Um, if it was something more like a betrayal of trust from the brother, then maybe not. I just don't know. Just just putting um, in her, just putting in her passcode would be enough to violate the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So unless she gave it and gave him the passcode. Not necessarily. Okay. If she gave him the passcode, it would be authorized access. And there's been cases going up and down with different answers to the question of basically, if somebody has the passcode but kind of exceeds what he or she is supposed to do, is that CFAA and this has so many civil libertarian types worried because there hasn't been a clean answer one way or the other. But one other thing that's important to remember is on modern email, it's actually a lot harder to forge than it used to be because the mail servers will sign things cryptographically. So there'll be a nice paper trail for saying that the emails that Jeff Bezos published were as sent by the inquirer's lawyers who decided to violate Stringer Bell's maxim. Did you never take notes on your conspiracy? Yep. Yeah, Stuart, can I just ask, I mean, I've, you know, I've settled a number of cases uh, on behalf of clients and as have you and I'm sure Matthew too. I mean, the, the way the, the um, inquirer's Content folks and uh, lawyers papered this, particularly the the one email from the content director, I thought was pretty stark. I mean, um, I would not have counseled my clients to phrase things that way in an email, even if uh, they were pursuing this kind of a scheme. Yeah, I think th I, I think, though, that uh, uh, you you can't pass the New York bar without knowing how to write these letters I'll, just this way. I, it, it, it's sort of, uh, you sleazeball, you're going to jail forever. And by the way, how are the kids? <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I think this, this may just be lawyers who think that this is how hardball is played. I, I agree with you. It was, uh, a, a little dumb and a little stark, but we didn't get all of the correspondence. We got the correspondence that Jeff Bezos wanted to 
put forward. Uh, yeah. and, and so he may have um, deliberately plucked from it the one exchange that had been sort of triggered by some behavior on the side of his lawyers that uh, would make this more uh, understandable, but we don't know that yet. Well, I, I, I mean, I acknowledge there's some tough issues in this, but I would not be feeling very comfortable if I were AMI right now. That is that is for sure. So I and I, I, I guess um, we should close this with the, the, this question. What kind of romance is it when you say, darling, I love you so much, I'm leaving my wife and I'm going to ensure a felony charge against your brother? <laughs> well... Or maybe put another way, Stuart, the practical takeaway for your vast swath of listeners is if you're dating one of the world's great tycoons, maybe don't lend your phone to your siblings. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It, it's sort of sad that uh, when there's that much money involved uh, uh, and the stakes are that high and President Trump is tweeting about you, uh, better use WhatsApp. Okay. Uh, uh, moving right along, I, I, I thought... What was happening in Europe involving Facebook and social media generally deserved at least a little uh, uh, attention. Uh, uh, the Irish Data Protection Agency has 15 or 16 big cases, and half of them are against Facebook. They've, they've issued warnings saying, don't you dare uh, uh, merge your databases about WhatsApp and uh, Facebook and uh, uh, Instagram uh, and at the same time, there's a uh, a lot of antitrust uh, competition law action. Uh, both the uh, commissioner for competition, uh, Verstrager, uh, has said, I think there's a big problem with data and dominant industries. And the German cartel office has said, uh, we think Facebook is a dominant player in whatever market sector they identified, probably wasn't social media, which is what I'm sure Facebook was arguing. Uh, and therefore, uh, the use of data is subject to special regulation. Uh, and they started to suggest that there were going to be new limitations uh, that would prevent Facebook from, again, combining this data. Um, and I, 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 am not entirely persuaded that there's a big a privacy problem here, uh, but I am interested in what the um, competition authorities are saying. Matthew, did you look at all these cases? I, I did. I looked at a, certain, uh, a number of them, and I think it is the twin clubs of the Europeans, one club being GDPR and, and the new muscle they have to enforce and levy big, big fines, and then the other is the one you mentioned, which is the competition authority led by Vestager saying, well, there's anti-competitive effect of having all this data pooled and having companies control it. You know, I, I continue to think it's really interesting uh, that, uh, you know, the primary targets of all these happen to be the American big data platforms. And, uh, you know, I anxiously look forward to seeing some GDPR enforcement against European players in the space. Or, or, or Chinese Or Chinese players, players in the space. Um, so, you know, this is what Europe's doing. I, I do think that Facebook uh, made their hole a little deeper uh, in connection with the one case you mentioned, Stuart, around integrating the three platforms, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, because they had the then WhatsApp uh, leadership 
going into European commissioner offices saying, oh, no, this will never be pooled. We're going to be independent. And it was a way to assuage all the concerns that are now being brought to the fore. And now all that seems to be by the by. Uh, and it's evidenced by the fact that the founders of Instagram and WhatsApp are now gone from the Facebook empire because they said we've lost our independence. So Facebook seems to do what it typically does, which is make promises that need to be made at the point in time they need to make them and then back away from them later and explain why they were mistaken before. So, you know, I can I can quibble with the merits of what the EU regulators are doing, but I don't think Facebook makes its case any better when it goes back on its word within four or five years. So I, I, I agree that uh, massaging the regulators has never been their strong suit. Uh, I'm really interested in the, as you know, I, I think that basically Facebook is getting Twitter mobbed here, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, they're the company everybody loves to hate. So, of course, they're violating uh, data protection law because everybody's violating data protection law. The question is, who do we pick on? And we pick on the people we hate, mm -hmm. uh, a.k.a. Twitter mobbing them. Uh, I'm more interested in the idea that maybe there's a data um, concentration problem here, but don't you think that the ultimate remedies fall into very different buckets? On the one hand, you say, uh, we're going to not allow you to uh, uh, to share this data to uh, uh, under data protection rules. You can't share it. You can't combine it. Uh, but if you're worried about concentration of, of power through the use of data, wouldn't you be looking for mandated sharing of data? Say, you need to make this data available to six other competitors, uh, uh, otherwise you will maintain your concentration and your uh, duopoly or uh, uh, dominant position forever. Yeah, but the, the that remedy, the latter one you articulated, the mandating of sharing it with six other competitors completely runs into the wall of, well, what does privacy mean? If I give my data to Instagram right, and now the competition regulator says, well, to make this fair in the marketplace, I need to share Matthew's data with these other six competitors, then I'm thinking, mm. what is what does privacy mean at this point? Why, and, and why do we have the GDPR in the first place? What, we have the GDPR so that we can Twitter mob people we don't like. Don't it's know. all about protecting privilege at the end of the day It's uh, and, and, and signaling virtue. Well, all right. The PLA is out of the business of stealing commercial secrets because the Ministry of State Secrets is in the business of stealing commercial secrets. Uh, 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 David, uh, uh, what's the latest on uh, MSS's activities in the U.S.? Yeah, so, you know, it should surprise no one that there may be some rivalry within the vast Chinese intelligence community, much as there is from time to time or so I've read within the U.S. intelligence community. And, and for a while there, the People's Liberation Army had the lead. They were celebrated in various DOJ indictments. Then there was an agreement to stop doing that. And now the Ministry of State Security in cooperation with something called APT-10, Advanced Persistent Threat Number 10, also known as various other things, including Stone Panda, Potassium, Red Apollo, and many other wonderful names, um, is engaged in a very major hacking scheme and was charged in December. Uh, two, two folks were charged in December with trying to steal intellectual property and confidential information, and they seem to be... Uh, pursuing efforts all across the globe, including in Norway and the United States and elsewhere. And the U.S. government is hopping mad about it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, 
if I'm right, and Nick, maybe you can weigh in on this, one of the things that they specialize in, that MSS specializes in, uh, one, I, I guess my sense is their tradecraft is a little better than the PLAs was, and two, they've been breaking into intermediate service providers so that they can compromise their customers, which strikes me as pretty chilling because you know you you can't necessarily know whether you're at risk because it's your outsourced provider of uh, IT services that's been compromised. That is, from what I understand, something that they've been doing, and it's an effective strategy. So if you outsource stuff to some cloud hosting provider, somebody takes over your cloud hosting provider, they can take over the instances. If you connect to those instances, you might be able to connect back, therefore getting you a foothold into the target institution. There's all those things. Plus, overall, it looks like the Chinese have been doing a lot of what I think should be called data int, collect huge reams of data, no matter the source. So the uh, Marriott hack, um, the Anthem hack, scrape stuff, the Anthem hack, etc. So that whenever you want to target a individual or institution, or generally an institution, you can find the individuals, find the individual's weaknesses, and then go from there. And it looks like that is the new arc that they're really practicing by hacking all these huge data sets. Yeah, or maybe they think they can eventually. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that they're actually doing that. Uh, maybe they are, but I, I I haven't heard the FBI say that they think that happened, and they certainly find people who are compromised all the time. And the, I'm sure the Chinese run compromise ops against people who don't get compromised fairly often. You would think that if they had specialized information, they'd end up using it in ham-handed ways that uh, told us they were using it. I just haven't gotten any sense that that's happening yet. You know, one thing that might be going on here um, is the Chinese are obviously very interested in collecting huge amounts of data in order to help train their AI algorithms. And they have a lot of data, unlimited basically data, on their own people. But um, Westerners may have different habits or behavior patterns. And if they can get enough data from Marriott or other sources like that, they may be able to use it generally to help train their models, which would be a benefit to them. So even if they're not doing any particular kind of compromise operation, it still may be beneficial. Oh, I love that because they've got the OPM stuff that tells them all about a whole bunch of government officials, some of them uh, intelligence operatives, and they could they could dump all the Anthem data and the hotel data into a, uh, a machine learning algorithm and say, can you find the people who are uh, engaged in work for the U.S. government that we should be interested in. And since they know the answer, they can actually evaluate how good a job their AI is doing. Right. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, speaking of uh, foreign government attacks on uh, the United States, uh, there's a $10 million fine floating around uh, aimed at an electrical utility. Uh, the name was redacted when the uh, um, uh, order imposing the fine was released, but uh, reporters have said it's, uh, uh, it's Duke Energy. Uh, um, uh, Matthew, uh, uh, did you look closely at this? 
Yes. I, th- I think it is a scary story because Duke is considered by and large to be one of the class A utility providers in terms of resourcing, funding, profitability. It's supposed to be a really re- well-run large utility. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that NERC, which is the North American Electrical Reliability Corporation, which is a quasi-governmental entity that kind of polices this stuff, referred to FERC, which is the f- uh, federal, federal Energy uh, Regulatory, Energy Regulatory Commission. <laughs> uh, Committee uh, Commission. Uh, my two favorite acronyms, NERC and FERC, working together, um, found some really gaping holes in cybersecurity practices at Duke Energy. Uh, things like technicians sharing passwords with other employees, uh, not updating cybersecurity such that Duke's own engineers are blind to hacking attempts for six months at a time. Just really kind of sloppy practices. And the scary thing about that, of course, is uh, with all the stories about Russia and our electrical grid, if this is what a best-in-class company looks like, we can only expect the same or worse from the rest of that industry. And so just points out that uh, you know, I don't think Russia's having to work really hard to hack our electrical grid if this is what we've got uh, in front of them. So I, I, I thought I would scare you more. It's not so much what violations they found as what they thought it took to get a violation. You know, those password rules, I, I can't believe these are still the rules, but this this is what they said. Uh, this is the, uh, the, the rule that uh, they require. They require that each password used by an electrical utility shall be a minimum of six characters long. Yeah. Uh, that'll, that'll show right? right? Uh, it, uh, how long, uh, Nick, would it take to run a, um, uh, a rainbow table on six characters worth of passwords? <laughs> Done. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, long uh, in, in less time than it takes Nick to uh, jeeringly laugh at the proposal. If, uh, I rem- if I remember right, the password password is eight characters, so that would survive that, exactly. that criteria. Yeah, I, you know, I, and this is this is what NERC and FERC are saying. These are the cybersecurity standards, and when you read the uh, settlement, and it is a settlement, that's the, right. the, uh, also significant. I think uh, uh, it is endless little check the box i came through with my clipboard and i found this violation i found that violation and there was uh you know there was uh rodent feces on the floor and i you know it's just at, at some point you say this is compliance over security i and yet this is all we have that protects the cybersecurity of the grid yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it makes you wonder, too, if there couldn't be more creative ways by our, by our regulators to incentivize uh, cybersecurity best practices, whether it's long-term monitoring arrangements where they're trying to hack on a regular basis to really test our companies doing what they say they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, okay, last uh, uh, story. Uh, um, uh, this This strikes me as the least likely uh, civil liberty scandal to get legs uh, that we've seen uh, in the last year. It was an effort in the Washington Times to say, oh, we should be really worried uh, that uh, the Justice Department is going after um, a North Korean botnet uh, by going in and figuring out uh, who's been compromised and getting them to uh, respond to different 
instructions than the instructions that the North Koreans are sending them. Uh, the Joan app, I guess, is the uh, um, uh, the proposed uh, uh, is the name of the uh, botnet. And uh, DOJ essentially got a court order saying, yes, you can go find those computers and you can give them new instructions. Instead of listening to the North Koreans, they can listen to the FBI and the FBI will tell them to stop attacking people. Um, and Julian Sanchez, who's been on this program, uh, uh, said, uh, gee, those poor people, they were victimized by the North Koreans and now they're being re-victimized by the, the FBI. It's just a shame. And the EFF uh, uh, flips out. I, I have trouble seeing any problem here. This is the, the result of the change in, in Rule 41 uh, uh, that the Obama administration proposed, but it looks as though it's working exactly as um, we expected it to. Uh, David, did you look at this, Nick? Yes, and from my point of view, it's actually working too hard. So the FBI got permission to participate in the botnet, talk to the bots, and basically act like another node in the botnet and just collect basically passively information about how the botnet is structured. This is the kind of thing that researchers like us, and in fact colleagues have done, without making our lawyers blink twice. So this was an actual experiment done a few years back by some colleagues. They infiltrated one of these botnets. They participated in the peer-to-peer -peer network. And then they rewrote the spam that was being sent so that it would have links to the researcher copy sites so that they could actually understand how well those spam bots actually work at getting people to respond. And this was work done with consultation with our lawyers, and our lawyers were good with it. And, and the, the, I, the IRB, the, your IRB approved it, uh, or did they not think that, that this was uh, human subject research? Not human subjects. Okay. The FBI request didn't include what they could have justified. So just talking in the botnet doesn't actually touch the CFAA or anything else because you're actually just participating with the legit protocol. The bots are supposed to do that. The CFAA comes in if you want to say, tell the botnet, inject your own commands like, oh, shut down. And um, there was no uh, request even to authorize that. I, oh, um, I'm I'm sorry. I thought they had done that. Oh my God, this is so no, sad. Julian Sanchez just, is losing his sense of proportion here. Yes, this was literally the kind of thing researchers in computer security will do without causing our lawyers to blink twice. We'll still ask our lawyers, "Is this a good idea?" And they'll go, "Yes." And the other thing is, is just overall, I don't think the civil libertarians appreciate just how much our civil liberties are protected by paperwork. If I had to do the paperwork for this, I'd just say, ah, oh, screw it. Let the botnet go. Let the North Koreans have their fun. It's just a huge amount of pain for stuff that is just straightforward. Yeah. Well, so the the alternative would have been to go to every single federal district where there was a bot uh, and get another court order aimed at the bots in that district. That's what it, the, the rules used to be before Rule 41 was changed. No, it's worse that 
the problem is, is you never could because this work was only really about finding out where the bots were. So if you need a warrant to talk in the botnet and find out where the bots were in every jurisdiction that may potentially have a bot, you <laughs> can do it at all. You'll never be able to get there. Yeah, you can't get there from here. Uh, uh, all right. Well, that, uh, uh, thank you, EFF. Uh, uh, let's hope that, that uh, your fundraising campaign on this issue completely fails. Um, uh, I want to say thanks to uh, Matthew Hyman, David Chris, and especially to Nick Weaver uh, for joining me on episode 250 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson because I'm going to read, as I promised I would, uh, a uh, recent review uh, that was posted on Apple. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, it was uh, uh, posted by Hoya Saxa SD. Uh, says, I got a fever and the only cure is more weaver. Love the show. I'm a lawyer, but not in tech or security law. It's still fascinating. My teenage sons also like most episodes, especially the Nick Weaver segments, and I concur. There needs to be Weaver in every episode and more of him. Uh, in fact, an hour of Weaver and Baker debating and discussing would be the perfect show. Uh, uh, so as, uh, as Peggy Lee uh, once said, just give me Weaver. Give me Weaver. <laughs> So, uh, Nick, thank you. Yeah, uh, that's a that's that's a great review, and thanks to Hoya Sachs and SD. Uh, and and let me let me say, I I will I will read some of these others, but we got we have a fair number of reviews on Apple. But if you are listening to this on a uh, Android device through Google or Pocket Cast or Stitcher, there's only one review, and it was a year, it's more than a, it's about a year old, uh, uh, and it's sort of sad. Baker has become a political pundit. Baker is becoming increasingly irrelevant as he works to defend every action that conspiracy pushers like Devin Nunes take. I thought Skating on Stilts was a good read. Well, thank you. Uh, that provided an interesting perspective, but now he seems to have lost to partisanship. So, if you agree with that, at least give me five stars. Uh, uh, but if you, <laughs> if you think that is not a, a, a representative uh, criticism and you're listening to this on Stitcher, now is the time. There's only that one review. So it would be nice to balance it out with another review that says, you know, that uh, Skating on Stilts wasn't that good a read. A read. Uh, so that's uh, that's my pitch for the day and uh, uh, the week. Uh, um, uh, one more pitch. Um, our friends at Third Way, you remember we've had Mika Yoyang on here uh, and the Journal of National Security Law and Policy are looking for proposals for an upcoming cyber enforcement symposium. If you've got a paper that you want to present and you are looking for a way to break into policy and pundit circles in Washington on cyber issues, uh, this is a good place to start. So uh, uh, we'll put up a link to the uh, uh, CFP uh, in the show notes so that you can uh, uh, send your proposals for uh, 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 appearing on the program uh, to, to Mika and her friends. Remember, if you send us a, uh, a suggestion for an interview guest, uh, we will send you one of our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mugs. We, it's very selective. We don't always have a guest, as witness uh, today. Uh, so uh, you got to meet our high standards, but uh, I'm sure with our listening audience, we can do that. Uh, uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I occasionally will 
give previews of what we're going to discuss on uh, at Stuart Baker on Twitter. Uh, uh, so you can lobby for your favorite stories uh, by liking those if you want to. Uh, we're going to have uh, some great guests coming up. Dmitry Alperovich, who's always terrific, uh, the CEO of CrowdStrike, will be coming on. Uh, Gordon Akravitz and Steve Brill, an unlikely pairing of liberals and uh, conservatives from mainstream media, uh, have started a company called NewsGuard. Uh, which is right in the middle of the, the fake news uh, fight. Uh, uh, and uh, while I'm both interested and skeptical about their proposal, it'll be fun to have a deep conversation about uh, fake news and uh, protecting uh, the New York Times uh, uh, from criticism. Uh, and Amy Ziegart uh, of Stanford's Hoover Institution will be coming on to talk about uh, some of the cyber war issues that she's been struggling with uh, uh, along with Herb Lynn at uh, the Stanford Hoover Institution. Our show credits go to Lori Paul and Christy Jorge, our producers, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, host and provocateur. Uh, we hope you'll join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.